It's time. It's time to do a critique. It's time to do a critique, which everybody loves, right? I hope so. I'm singing a song and it's, oh, sh Oh, it's, that, okay, that, I didn't mean to do that. That wasn't part of the gag. <laughs> Everything's okay now. Sometimes people ask me why I have like a drink while I make these critiques. And the answer is because I need to enjoy this too. You enjoy watching them. These are very difficult to make. They take a long time. I'm sitting here for like three to four hours shooting one critique like this. So I might as well have some uh, liquid talent, as I say, to make the video more interesting. I also just realized that South Park is on behind me. Oops. <laughs> Yes, my friends, it is finally here. The Red Dead Redemption 2 critique we've all been long awaiting. It's happening. Red Dead Redemption 2 had a lot to live up to. And in my estimation, it was the most highly anticipated game of 2018. And that's saying something considering that it was also the same year that the new God of War reboot launched. It's pretty remarkable that it was the most hyped game of that year and really, for most people, the most hyped game of several past years. This game is the newest release from Rockstar, the same guys that made L.A. Noire and Grand Theft Auto 5 and 4. These guys are the kings of open world games. It's been a long time since we got something from them, 2013 to be exact, so this new release was highly, highly anticipated. Now I've talked about Red Dead Redemption 2 in other videos, in smaller formats, 10 minute video here, 20 minute video here. Um, and I've linked those down below if you wanna go and read them. I'm not gonna rehash a lot of the stuff that I covered in those videos, but we are going to deep dive into what the game does, how it works, why it works in this video. Now it should probably go without saying, but I am going to spoil pretty much everything in this video. I'm not gonna talk about a lot of the minutiae within the game because again, I'm assuming that you've already played it because I'm going to be spoiling everything. So we're not gonna be discussing things like the graphics or the sound design or how the controls work in little bitty instances because to me that seems more uh, necessary in a review style video, which would come out right around the time of release. That's not what this video is. This video is breaking down why the game works the way that it does, why those choices were made by the development team and whether or not they were good decisions. Try to break it down and figure out how it works. If you've seen these videos before for other games I've, I've covered, then you'll know exactly what to expect. But if you're new, that's pretty much what we're doing. I should also communicate that I went through two full run-throughs of Red Dead Redemption 2 in preparation for this video. One run where I kept Arthur super shaggy. That was my first run-through. Didn't have him shave, I think, at all after the first like 45 minutes of the game. Uh, and you can tell by the end. And then the second playthrough, I kept him relatively clean shaven, skipped through a lot of the dialogue sequences because I had already seen it before and just focused on the gameplay, exploration, that type of thing. Um, and this is part of the reason that this video has taken so long. And I'm gonna put a little time code here so that if you don't want to hear any of this, you can skip forward to where the video technically starts. But I do just want to stress this video wouldn't be possible without the supporters on Patreon. Um, all of those names are listed down in the description box below. They got to see this video a full week before everybody else. And if you want to see other critiques like this one on upcoming games uh, a full week before everybody else, you can support me on Patreon. It's only a dollar to support and it really does help. It means the world gives me a reasonable and steady income that I can rely upon to pay rent so that if YouTube 
you know, screws me over, I'm not going to starve. Not to mention that you also get some cool perks, like you get your name in the description box based on the level that you donate to. You can also have your name in the ending credits of the video, or you can get a straight up shout out. As of this point, nobody has reached that tier, so maybe you'll be the first and you're gonna be a, the lone person or entity that's called out in the next critique. You never know. Point being, these videos take a long time to make. I have roughly 127 hours of footage that I've had to sift through to create this video that you're about to watch. And then I have to write a script and I have to go through everything that I wanna discuss and I have to edit it and re-edit it. That takes about a week. And then I go through and I have to actually shoot it like this, which can take three, four, five, six hours of shooting. Then I have to cut the, all of that together into something that's watchable watch it multiple times, edit it, make sure it's polished and consistent and consumable, I suppose. It takes a lot of work and it's unfortunately not free for me. It may be free for you to watch it, but it's not free for me. It does take a lot of time, a lot of effort, and this equipment isn't free either. So if you wanna watch it for free, absolutely, you can do that. That's why YouTube exists. But if you wanna support me on Patreon to help financially keep these videos coming, I would highly appreciate it. And I'm sure all of the viewers who are not able to support financially would also appreciate that support. But with all that said, let's jump right into it. When I was trying to figure out what we should discuss first with regards to Red Dead Redemption 2, I tried to figure out if we should first talk about the game's world or if we should talk about the characters or if we should talk about the overarching story or maybe the developmental past and history of Red Dead Redemption and how it got started. But to me, I think the core and the soul of this game has to do with its characters. That's what makes the game feel alive. That's what gives the game meaning, is these individuals that live within this world and are so believable, relatable, and they, they keep you going. They give you the drive to continue playing for what is, for some people, an 80 plus hour campaign. They're like Guinness for YouTubers. Now, in my estimation, the game tells basically four stories. It tells the stories of Arthur Morgan, Dutch Vanderlyn, John Marston, and then the world and the characters who are extraneous to it that all interact with each other and give it context, feeling, and emotion. And each of these four stories are completely intertwined. They're not monoliths. They don't stand as their own pillars of entertainment that you can engage with when you see fit. They all work together and you start with certain emotions and feeling towards certain characters. And then as the story progresses, as you progress through the game and as Arthur progresses through his life, you progress through your opinions and emotions towards these characters, just the way that Arthur is. And honestly, all of the dialogue, all of the conversations, and most of the story beats are expertly done. They really need to give the writers over at Rockstar bonuses because this is pretty damn impressive, especially when you consider that they had to keep this quality up for 80 plus hours of campaign, not to mention all of the side content, which probably takes it up to 100 to 120 hours plus of content, all of which is expertly written. And there's never a moment when you feel as though, okay, they gave that to the intern. It always feels high quality and well done. Now, Redemption, as you would expect with a game called Red Dead Redemption, plays a pivotal role in all of these characters' stories, in the story of the world and the society that's trying to tame it and is overcoming the wilderness and what they deem to be savages in favor of a new world who's, which is brighter and controlled by capitalism and all of the intelligent people from the East. And then it also is told with regards to Arthur and his story of redemption, trying to atone for his sins, especially 
especially after he learns of his diagnosis. And then it's also told with John Marston trying to become the father that his wife and son expect from him, especially in the epilogue. We see the story really branch out broad and, and become what you would expect. The only character who doesn't really seek redemption, at least throughout the overwhelming majority, 99.9% .9 of the game, would be Dutch Vanderland. And it's really interesting because Dutch is set up, especially by the end of the game, as the antagonist. He's the one that's primarily getting in the way of the protagonist, Arthur Morgan and John Marston. He's getting in the way of their success and their progress and what they want to achieve. But when you start the game, you don't realize he's the antagonist and neither does Arthur. And really, it takes until you hit chapter five before you even start to consider that Dutch might not have your best interests at heart, that he might just be a self-absorbed narcissist who is only out for his own self-aggrandizement. And the reason that I say 99.9% .9 of the time Dutch is not concerned with redemption in the same way that uh, John Marston and Arthur Morgan are is because he's not. He's only looking out for his own best interests and his own self-interests until the very, very end of the game. At the end of the epilogue part two, right before the credits roll the final time, up until that point, he's been completely self-absorbed, but it's at that point he steps out and he listens to John Marston and he actually shoots Micah and just walks away, leaving his treasure, leaving everything to you. And it is, in a weird way, a sort of apology to John Marston and to Arthur Morgan and everybody that he harmed. He's just sort of walking away from everything he gained, all of the things that he had been fighting for all those years. And he says, fine, I, I guess you're right. I, I wasn't who I thought I was. I wasn't who you thought I was. Take it. And so I guess the point is, is that at the end of the day, even Dutch sought this sort of Red Dead redemption in the form of killing Micah, but he didn't seek it for the overwhelming majority of the story. And that's why I really consider the end of Red Dead Redemption 2 to be a very happy ending, despite the fact that Arthur's dead and everybody is leaving and separates from each other. It really is a happy ending because even the antagonist sought redemption in his own bloody, weird way. And this is why I think it's important that we sit back and really appreciate what Rockstar was able to do here, specifically their writers. It's not easy to interweave all of these characters together and the world together where they all interact and conflict and then become peaceful allies and then conflict again. It's not easy to do this, especially when they all have the same core desire, which is to seek redemption for past crimes and ills and sins that they've committed. It's not easy to do, but they do it so expertly that you barely even notice it's going on. But I wanna deep dive into this a little bit more. So we're gonna analyze each of these stories one by one and sort of break apart how they work and why they work. Let's start with the wild, the world of Red Dead Redemption 2 and figure out what makes it tick, what makes it work. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out why the world of Red Dead Redemption 2 works, why it feels so freeing, why it feels so open and accepting, why it feels as though you can do everything and anything, even though it's actually highly constrained. And this is something we've seen before with Rockstar games. They actually have pretty constrained worlds, but they build them in such a way where it feels alive and breathing and as though it's something a place where you could actually go and live and explore. When I say this, I'm mainly thinking of a world like the one they built for L.A. Noir, Los Angeles in the late 1940s. It really feels like a living, breathing place, not because the world itself is a huge open world where you can fly planes around, you can do whatever you want, but rather because all of the characters that you interact with live and breathe in that world and their actions and their beliefs, everything is informed by that world and it's incredibly engrossing. 
they were actually able to achieve a lot of the same things with Red Dead Redemption 2. And I don't think we should downplay the significance of that to make a world that's actually highly constrained because it is a video game after all and make it feel as though it is utterly unconstrained is really a remarkable feat. It's almost like a weird sort of Stockholm syndrome, but in the place of the victim, we have the player. And in the case of the higher up or the authority figure in question, we have the world of Red Dead Redemption 2, where the player starts believing that it's a living, breathing world, even though it is just a world in a video game that's fairly straightforward. There's not a whole lot of side activity sprinkling the land. There are dynamic encounters. There's things that you can find and do. But it's not as as densely packed as, for instance, the world of an Assassin's Creed Odyssey, but I don't think it should be. In fact, I would actually argue that because the world of Red Dead Redemption 2 is less crowded and dense, it actually comes off feeling more alive. Allow me to explain. I've made a plethora of videos analyzing what we call the density of an open world. And what we do is we go through just exploring a game's world and we break down how often an event of interest, quote unquote, occurs. So basically, if we're riding through a large open field, how often something catches our eye that makes us think, oh, that's interesting, or in effect, alters the direction that we were going, changes the way that we were thinking, or at least our thought process in some form or fashion. And then what we do is we chart through how often that happens. I mark down the, the amount of time between each of those occurrences. We plot them on a chart and then we take the standard deviation. We do a lot of uh, regression analysis and we break down effectively what the mean time is between each of these moments of interest so that you can figure out roughly how dense the world is that you're exploring. A game such as Assassin's Creed Odyssey has things happening every 20 seconds in some areas, or even less than that. Effectively, as you're exploring, you're constantly inundated with new bright flashy thing here, bright flashy thing there. It's constantly hitting you, so you are effectively never, quote unquote, bored. You're never left alone with your thoughts. You're never left alone to do your own thing. They always try to keep it light and fresh to the point where you can't just explore and just ride your horse. There's always something catching your eye. There's always something to do. In the world of Red Dead Redemption 2, the time in between moments of interest and interesting things happening can even be quadrupled that amount. So 80 seconds to even two minutes between moments of interest or occurrences of something that changes your thought process. And for many people, I think they would look at that and assume that the game would be more boring. There aren't as many things changing your thought process or in effect garnering your attention and therefore it must be less interesting or more boring because you're left alone with your thoughts more. And I think that this is a dangerous assumption to make. To me, the important thing to stress is the fact that the game is allowing you to be alone with your thoughts, to be alone in this field all by yourself, exploring the world as you see fit. And for some people who have played the game, it does come off as boring, quote unquote. They simply don't connect with the world. They don't respond to it in the same way. But I do encourage you, if you've had that problem and maybe you're watching this video because it didn't connect with you in the same way that you would hope to, and maybe you're watching this video to figure out why, that's the reason why, likely, because the world is much more spread out. It's not trying to be as densely packed as in Odyssey, but it's doing that for a very particular reason. It's doing that for a reason that was chosen specifically by the game directors because it changes the way that you, the player, 
interact with the world. Instead of thinking of the world as serving you, you're trying to figure out a way to grab and force your way into the world to interact with it. If you want to go hunting in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, you're just going around shooting whatever you want to shoot because there's everything everywhere. If you have an arrow, you basically shoot it any direction, you're going to hit something. In Red Dead Redemption 2, you have to put out bait, you have to go and you have to hide in a particular area, and then you have to wait for a particular time of day, and then they might come by. Or even in some cases, you can leave a rotting carcass on the back of your horse or dump it in a field, and then predators are going to come and find their way to it because the world is living and breathing a dynamic in that way. It sounds weird, but I do think you have to condition yourself a little bit in order to play these games, quote unquote, correctly. And when I say playing a game correctly, I don't mean that if you play it in a slightly more aggressive way or a slightly more uh, creative way that you're playing it wrong and you're not going to have a good experience or that you're a bad person if you play it the quote unquote wrong way. But I think it is fair to say that developers do have a particular play style in mind. For instance, with Red Dead Redemption 2, it's pretty clear that these guys were trying to create a world that you interacted with, that you explored at your own pace and at your own leisure. And in doing that, you get adjusted to this slower pace of life, the same pace of life that Arthur or John Marston would be accustomed to living in the Wild West. And I will just say it is funny. We're talking about like 20 seconds versus 80 seconds. It's still a pretty small amount of time compared to the real world. But in video game time, that's like years. That's ages 20 seconds in assassin's creed odyssey feels like a little bit of a a wait between interesting things happening and so when you play it in red dead redemption 2 and you have like a minute two minutes between interesting things happening it can feel as though you're serving a life sentence but you know i've said it before and i'll say it again many times throughout this video the world of red dead redemption 2 is a reflection of its narrative its narrative informs the world in floor forms <laughs> The narrative informs the world and the world informs the narrative and they all interact with each other in a beautiful, harmonious way that you rarely see in open world games, especially in 2018, 2019. Knock on wood for cyberpunk, right? I think that's what. Now, even though the worlds of Red Dead Redemption 2 and Assassin's Creed Odyssey are both unbelievably massive for a video game, part of the reason that Odyssey's map feels a lot smaller is because it's so dense. So uh, once again, you're never left alone with your thoughts thinking, wow, this map is huge. There's always something that's occurring, except for when you're sailing on the ocean. But even then, there's still ships that come and try to attack you. There's still animal sightings that you can encounter. There's always something. And I think it just comes down to a difference in philosophy when it comes to building an open world. Some of these developers want to make it as densely packed as it possibly can so that it seems as alive as it possibly can. When Red Dead Redemption 2 looks at it more in a realistic sense where it says part of realism is that interesting things don't happen that often. And when they do, they're exceptional because they are an exception. They aren't normal, which is why you remember them, why the, these random encounters that you can have stick out in your mind because they didn't happen all the time in the game. Whereas if you were constantly encountering these weird, kooky and crazy characters on the side of the road, it would lose its potency. You would build up a tolerance to it effectively. And lastly, I think one of the things that the world of Red Dead Redemption 2 does so well that needs to be lauded and praised is the fact that Rarely do you think to yourself, 
I am playing a game. It always feels as though you're exploring an actual world, an actual place. And to be honest, if you told me that they copied meter for meter, tree for tree, a section of the northwestern state of Colorado, I would probably believe you because it is so well and clearly, concisely, and carefully crafted. Every rock, every stone that they've put in here seems to have a purpose and seems to have landed there as, as the result of some natural process. It doesn't feel as though it was crafted for my entertainment. Even larger set pieces like this one still feel as though they are naturally occurring. It doesn't feel out of place. It feels as though you're exploring a world that's real. Now, of course, something that helps with this would be the graphics, would be the way that they actually render these scenes and the nature therein, the way that they handle fog, the way that they handle depth of field. Everything about the rendering engine within Red Dead Redemption is phenomenal and deserves all of the praise that it received, except for the HDR. I was a premium TV salesman for a little over a year, a little while back, and I got to deal with some of the most expensive TVs that money could possibly buy. A $60,000 Z9D from Sony. I work and I actually received a premium OLED from Sony for my time working with them. And I can attest and confirm that the HDR in this game is an absolute travesty. It, it's not HDR, it's just not. Like, I don't know what to tell you, it's just not. I don't know how the Rage engine, which is the engine they're using for Red Dead Redemption 2, handles upgrades later on in development, but it seems as though they worked for so long and so hard on the engine for Red Dead Redemption 2 to get these images, to get this quality brought up, that by the time they realized they needed to add in actual HDR support and that it wasn't just a gimmick, it was something that people expected, it was too late and they couldn't change it. And Perhaps it's just the way that they handle lighting. Perhaps it's the way that they calculate color space. I don't know. Whatever it is, they need to figure it out before they move on with their next release. I mean, some reports are saying we could get Grand Theft Auto 6 sometime in the next year and a half to two years, which is pretty quick for a, a fundamental turnaround like that. If you have to reprogram the way that your engine calculates light, you should do that sooner rather than later. But with all that said, let's move on to Arthur and Dutch. I'm going to cover these two fairly close together because they are inextricably tied and linked. They interact with each other more than any two characters in the entire game. They inform each other's decisions. And that's what I'm going to do. I ran out of words. Simply put, Arthur Morgan's life and story is one of evolution and then eventually redemption. At the start of the story, he's not seeking redemption in any way. He doesn't have a problem with the way that he's living his life or with the things that he's doing. He's simply working and living in a gang because that's what he does. He sees this group of thieves and murderers and scoundrels as his family, and he's doing what he's doing to protect them. He doesn't feel bad about it. He only starts to have second thoughts once he realizes that he's been diagnosed with tuberculosis and that Dutch is not the man that he thought he was. It sort of takes the blinders off, and he starts to rethink a lot of the things that he has been doing for years and years and years. Effectively, his story goes like this. He starts out as a petty criminal in the service of a gang leader that he idolizes and thinks the world of. Then he continues and he gains rapport with the gang leader, eventually becoming effectively his right-hand man. 
And then he starts to have doubts. He starts to realize that his leader might not be as perfect as he thought he was. And then he realizes downright that his idol doesn't actually care about him and that his idol is a fraud and has just been using him for his own self-aggrandizement. And then he realizes that he needs to atone for his sins and that he needs to turn his life around and change the way he's been doing everything before his time runs out. And I think that's the important point, the very last one, which is that Arthur, by the time the game ends, has become the man that he wanted Dutch to be for all of those years. He's become the idol that he sought, and he's evolved to that point. And in the process of that evolution, he's gained redemption. Now, when we come to Dutch, it's a slightly different conversation. And I love Arthur Morgan, and I love Arthur as a character. But Dutch always seems to steal the show whenever he enters onto screen. He just is fascinating, and I'm not entirely sure why. A lot of it has to do with his performance, likely. A lot of it has to do with the sort of mystical power and confidence that he exudes. Uh, whoever directed the actor behind Dutch Vanderlyn, I'm actually, I'm going to look up his name. Benjamin Byron Davis. He plays Dutch Vanderlyn. High praise, my friend. He's not my friend. I wish he was. Regardless, high praise. This guy absolutely nails it and in some bizarre way is able to captivate the audience that's playing this video game in the same way that the characters on screen are captivated by his pure charisma and confidence. It really is impressive. And I think the directors behind his performance also should be praised because they were able to direct him in this way where his performance actually reflected that charisma. Because again, it's not easy to bring that charisma through the camera onto screen and to make the, the viewers actually feel the same way as the characters. And so across the board, phenomenal job. Now I'm going to throw out some details about Dutch's early life because I think it informs his character and I just find it interesting. I had to do some digging to figure out all of this. So you might not be aware, but regardless, here you go. Dutch was actually born back in 1855 to a British mother and a Dutch father. And he looked up to his father pretty hardcore. He thought that he was the manly man. He really uh, looked up to this guy and respected him and wanted to be like him until his father died during the Civil War fighting for the Union in what was likely the Battle of Gettysburg. It's heavily implied, but it's not outright stated, at least that I was able to find. If you can find it for sure or if I'm wrong, call me out in the comment section below. One of the interesting little tidbits is that Dutch actually became fairly bigoted towards Southerners in general once his father was killed during this battle because once again, fighting for the Union against the South, his father's killed. He looked at Southerners as being responsible for his father's death. And this is seen and reflected in his performance throughout the entire game. I actually encourage you, if you're going to do a second playthrough, keep an eye out. Whenever somebody with a Southern accent comes along in a scene, Dutch actually responds to them in a much more crude and harsh manner than people who come up to him with a foreign accent or with a sort of more pompous northerner accent. It's a small detail, but it's really fascinating. Once again, it just goes to show the amount of forethought that these writers put into the characters so that when they gave the actors these one sheets, which if you're not familiar with acting in these types of formats, basically what happens is you, sh you show up on the day of shooting after you've gotten the part and uh, either on the day of shooting or a week before, sometime before, they'll give you a one sheet, which basically goes through the character roughly as they see him currently or see her currently. And you are to read through it and bring your 
your own interpretation based on the background and all of the things that they tell you about the characters. So for something like Dutch, they would go through and they would say, hey, he was born in 1855. His father fought for the North and then he died in this battle. Now he is working in a gang and he's doing this, that and the other. And then the actor looks at that and says, "Okay, his father died in this battle. Well, he's likely becoming more bigoted towards Southerners. He sees the Southerners as responsible for his father's death, so he's not going to like Southerners. And maybe that's just something he accepts, that he just doesn't like Southerners, and that's just it. And that's going to inform this decision and this decision. And every time I interact with a Southerner, I'm going to have a little bit more doubt, and I'm going to look at them a little bit down. I'm not going to hold them to the same height as somebody from New York, for instance. And it's, it's utterly fascinating because, once again, all of this is inferred off of just some smaller details that they received from directors and writers. And that informs everything that comes after in an 80 plus hour experience that was shot over the course of several years. It's really impressive. Regardless, beyond all of this, Dutch decided to run away from home after his father died. He didn't get along with his mother. Just in general, it seems like he didn't have a lot of luck with women early on in his life. And for whatever reason, he just didn't connect with his mom. So he ran away from home. He started a life of crime. Eventually, he met Hosea and they decided to form a gang together, which Arthur, John, Micah, Abigail, all of those people would eventually join. And at one point, it's not exactly specified when or how this happened, but they decided to join up with Como Driscoll and his gang of brothers and weird inbred sisters and they work with them for a little while they rob trains together they do all sorts of stuff together it just seems to be a business partnership in effect even though it's crime so they partner up they rob some trains together they do some stuff again it's not specified for how long this goes on or exactly why what happened next happened next but what happened is dutch vanderlyn killed colmo driscoll's brother or at least one of them colm didn't like this and so he went and killed Dutch's lover. Like I said, it's not entirely clear how or why this happened, why Dutch felt the need to kill the brother. There's some hints here and there that it was a tussle, that they got into an argument, or it was a mistake, bloody blue to blah blah. But it's not heavily Im implied. What is clear is that Como Driscoll he even has a line where he says that he didn't care for that brother very much, and then Dutch responds with, I cared for Annabelle very much. I am sorry about your brother. Yeah, well, I never liked him much. I liked Annabelle. You always loved the ladies, Dutch Vanderlyn. I like that about you. And that's why you're a bad person, because I actually loved this girl. I cared about her deeply, and you took her from me, whereas you didn't even care about your brother, but you took the one thing I truly loved from me in retaliation and that sparks this whole uh fight and and this whole rivalry that starts and ensues after that and informs much of the game's actions and movements throughout the narrative throughout the whole first and second acts and actually technically ushers in everything up until the first phase of the ending of the game and a quest that's titled goodbye dear friend now, one thing I actually find very, very interesting, and this might seem like a total non sequitur, but you'll see why I'm bringing it up in a minute, is the choice of the game's opening. I've talked about this a little bit before in a previous video, but I'm going to bring it up now because, once again, I think it's important. And that is that 
the reason that they opened the game with the gang already on the run, as opposed to showing what happened in Blackwater, what happened with the failed robbery, what happened with Dutch killing the woman who seemingly didn't deserve it or have it coming in any way, shape or form. Choosing not to show the player that is a very tactical choice because it sets up the uncertainty that Arthur is also feeling because Arthur didn't see a lot of the events that transpired during that robbery. So the player comes into the story with the same uncertainty that Arthur had, even though it might have been a really cool opening cinematic to show this robbery taking place to show what actually happened. They purposely chose not to start that way and to instead start the game in a very solemn way, running away in a snowstorm because it sets the player in the same shoes as Arthur so that as they experience the story in these early chapters, they don't have an unfair advantage over Arthur. They don't have an unfair advantage over anybody in the story. They don't know anything beyond what the player character actually knows. Furthermore, at the beginning of the game, Arthur and pretty much the entire gang all have these blinders on. They can't see that what Dutch is doing doesn't make a whole lot of sense, that this guy doesn't have any credibility, that this guy has led them from failure to failure to failure, from death to death to death, and that he shouldn't be followed. He shouldn't be trusted whatsoever, but they continue to follow him because they have these blinders. It's this cult of personality that's surrounding him. And so by choosing to start the game in a, a time where there isn't anything happening. And when you just see Dutch for all of his charismatic uh, and gravitas that he brings to the table, that puts the player once again in a position where they are expected and sort of encouraged to go along with the herd in the same way that all of the gang members, Arthur, John, Abigail, everybody is expected to go. Now, what can't be denied is that Dutch is only interested in furthering his own interests. He is a narcissist through and through. And this is reflected not just in dialogue and scenes that we see with him, but even in his area of the camp. Everybody else is sleeping in smaller tents or is sleeping just outside on a rucksack next to the fire. But Dutch has a very large tent and he's got a nice bed in there. He's got a uh, Victrola. He's got a lot of very nice things that are expensive. It's because he's vain. It's because he's selfish. He could be using that money to help the gang, which is what he claims to be doing. But instead, he just uses it for his own comfort and pleasure. And all throughout the game, Dutch is constantly talking about his selflessness. He's constantly talking about the fact that he is doing what's best for the gang. And that's all he's ever done, especially in Chapter 5, when you're in Guarmo, when you actually see the relationship between Arthur and Dutch start to fall apart. You still see Dutch claiming that everything he's doing, even the messed up stuff that seems indefensible, he still defends it by saying that he's doing it for the good of the group. And it seems to be his get out of jail free card. Whenever he does anything that's bad or that's questionable, he can just pull out the card where he says, I did it for the group. You don't understand. I have a master plan. You just need some goddamn faith. And then you have to just give up and stop questioning him. Otherwise, he gets upset or he gets disappointed in you. And once again, because it's a cult of personality, all you can do is be like, well, I don't want to upset him. Okay, yeah, I guess he is right. I'm doubting him and I should have more faith. What, what, what am I doing? Of course, you're, you're an idiot. That's what should happen, but it doesn't. And everybody's just sort of smiles and nods until Arthur starts to snap out of it. And then eventually Sadie starts to snap out of it. But to be fair, Sadie was probably smart to it way before everybody else. She just has that air about her. 
Now let's actually look at an example. This is in chapter five, which we're going to discuss for a moment because I think it's actually the pivotal moment of the story. This happens in the roughly middle of chapter five when you're in Guarma, everything's gone bad and the game has taken a little bit of a shift. You went from exploring the Wild West, collecting a lot of money, feeling as though you were all that in a bag of chips. And then everything comes collapsing down. You're on the run. Some members of your gang died while you were trying to escape. And then your ship sinks and you crash on this island. You become a prisoner. You escape as a prisoner. And now you're trying to rescue some of the members of your gang before getting off the island once and for all and going back home where you can potentially regain some of your losses. This moment occurs during the quest to Kind and Benevolent Despot, which is uh, probably one of the most important quests during the entirety of the main story's narrative. Not because of anything that happens graphically or in terms of gameplay, but because of the discussions and what it means for the characters that engage in them. And so, here's the clip. Hey! Hi. So, uh, what's the plan? Well, I found the cave Hercule spoke of, and also a guide. She's up ahead. I think we can trust her. Follow me. The entrance is along here. Just watch your footing. So, what do we do when we get Javier? Well, uh, gonna get the hell out of here. And set sail for the one place ain't nobody gonna be expecting us get everybody together and get ourselves back on course where would that be place we just escaped from <laughs> you want to go back to sandini if it was you got left you'd want us to go back i'd want it but i wouldn't expect that's it that's the point ain't no one gonna expect it we come back from the dead Gather everyone, and we leave before anyone realizes we've even resurrected. An insect bite you or something? Cause you gone, friend. We look like what we are. A bunch of desperados on the run. But with the women, a change of clothes, we're a choir or a gang of pilgrims or something. Whatever you say. We're a bunch of penniless fugitives on some Caribbean dump, sneaking through caves while two of our best men got shot back home. How could I doubt you, Dutch? You got no idea, Arthur. No idea at all. I will do whatever it takes for us to survive. I guess that's what I'm afraid of. Hold on. Why? Gloria! Buenas noches. Buenas noches. Dinero, the money, the gold. Aquí. Dámelo. Oh, it's genuine, you old hag. Oh. Vamos. Vamos. Rápido. Now that gold right there, that's the last bit of gold I have in my pocket from the bank. The rest of it is at the bottom of the sea. Exactly. You know, wasn't 
Fusar, one of the fellas Bronte pointed out to us? At the party in San Denis? Yeah. You're right. I knew I'd heard that name before. Yeah. So, I met up with Leon. That situation with the workers is dealt with. Captured, tied up, beaten. Poor bastards. No, that was me. Are you sure this Hercule fellers ain't just using us? Almost certainly. But he's the best chance we have right now of getting out of this place. Won't be long before someone figures out who we are and sends word to the U.S. So what happened with John in that bank? He survived. Unlike dear Hosea and Lenny. The only one they took alive. Why is that, you think? I don't know. I was already on the roof. I didn't see it. And Abigail, I presume she was able to slip away in time. What are you talking about? You know, when I look back at all the chaos of the past few weeks, the apparent superficial chaos, I begin to wonder, maybe, for somebody, this is all going exactly to plan. I still ain't sure what you're saying, Dutch. The door is stopped. You'll have to lift it. Pardon me, my queen. <coughs> Arthur, come help me with this. Just lift it. Okay, then. <laughs> This way. See, then you pay more. Okay. More. Just a second. Pay more. Pay now. What? What are you doing? Jesus! Easy, Dutch! What was that? Horrible old crone. But you killed her. She was gonna betray us, Arthur. Couldn't you tell? No. Well, I got some Spanish. She was. You keep killing folk, Dutch. I am just trying to make sure that some of us survive, Arthur. Now, shall we proceed? Yes. Listen, <clears throat> son. You think I want any of this? I don't know. Of course I don't. But I made a pledge to you all. We would survive. No matter what. So how did you know she was gonna betray us? What'd she say? It was in her eyes, in the way she was leading us. But you said you knew Spanish. I know human beings. Arthur. You gonna strangle me next? I'm doing the best I can. So Dutch and Arthur are helped by this woman. They go through the tunnel. The woman asks for more money. Dutch says no and proceeds to just strangle her and bash her head on the ladder, killing her. And Arthur's a little shocked by this. And to be honest, the player 
is likely shocked by this too because it seems so disproportional and out of the blue like you're a massive dude you could have just pushed her to the side sure she pulled a knife on you but once you grabbed her and hit her head on the the ladder you're probably okay you probably weren't in that much danger but it reflects not just what Dutch was doing. Perhaps it was just a, a sort of moment of weakness. Perhaps he just snapped and got scared and angry and hit her head one too many times. Perhaps that's what it was. But that's not really what the moment is about. That's not what this whole interaction is about. What it's about is the conversation that comes afterwards, where Dutch, instead of accepting responsibility, like, I don't know what came over me, I, uh, it just happened. He instead claims to be holier than thou, that he's the savior, that he just did that thing in front of Arthur for the good of the group. And that questioning him is to be questioning effectively the savior of the group. And that's unfair and he shouldn't do that. And Arthur for this one time, he just like back black and uh, black and black water. Unlike back in black water, Arthur was here to see this one. And he saw very clearly the Dutch was in the wrong. He just messed up. That was a mistake. That was a bad thing that he just did. Perhaps downright even immoral. Sure, she pulled a knife on you, but I think you got, like, you lost your cool, man. I think you lost your cool. But no, instead of saying that, he claims the higher status and says that if you question me, then you aren't believing in the one person that can save you. And I think that that is the pivotal and titular moment of this whole moment. This is why Dutch, in this case, is the kind and benevolent despot as described in the title of the quest. And I guess this is the time when I should say that Red Dead Redemption 2 actually has some really, really funny and interesting and informative quest titles, which are not just there to title the quest, whatever it may be, like John goes to buy apples. They're actually written in a way where they can inform you a little bit more and give you more information to figure out what actually is going on in the quest in terms of broader themes. Just like with this one, it's titled A Good and Benevolent Despot. And despot is actually defined through Merriam-Webster as, quote-unquote, a ruler with absolute power and authority and or one exercising power tyrannically or a person exercising absolute power in a brutal or oppressive way, end quote. And that is, it changes the way that you look at the quest once you realize Dutch considers himself a good and benevolent despot. He considers himself, yeah, a tyrant, probably his way or the highway. Like he is the master commander. He is the one you obey, but he's good and he's moral, and you should follow him. Dutch is a tyrant, and perhaps he even accepts it, but he doesn't accept that it all hinges on his perception of what is moral and what is immoral. And the second that somebody sees his, his lack of morality and can call it out, he no longer has any power over them because he's just a tyrant at that point. He's lost his credibility as the good and benevolent despot. Point being, while this seemed to come out of nowhere to players and to Arthur, once you actually sit back and you start thinking about some of the things that you know, specifically about Blackwater, you start to realize that this is the way that Dutch has likely always been, or at least has been for a very, very long time, and that you just didn't see it. You just weren't there for it, or you trusted him too much. This is the guy that you've been following and that you were idolizing all this time, and you just didn't realize it. And let's just say after this, everything starts to collapse in terms of the story, in terms of the relationships, in a good way. It starts to collapse in terms of everything that these characters believed in and thought was true 
is crumbling because of Dutch's actions, because of the way everything is going. And so they all start to fight for themselves. And that's when the chaos really erupts and the story starts to pick up pace. And they start working with each other, even though they don't trust each other. And some really interesting moments come in. It can even lead to some pretty funny moments when Dutch is claiming to be the victim, as he always does. He's always the guy that's just trying to do right by the gang. He just wants to help everybody. But in reality, he's murdering and slaying hundreds of people for his own benefit while claiming he's doing it for other people. He's always the victim. He's never responsible for anything he does. And because of this, the story is just as much about John and Sadie and Arthur and the whole gang realizing that Dutch is not the man they thought he was as it is about Dutch's mental collapse and the collapse of the gang in general. It's pretty fascinating towards the end because you get to see a lot of people having these big moments of realization and I think you even can see it with Dutch where he realizes perhaps he isn't the man that he thought he was, but he starts to live in denial and he starts to not deny it and reject it. He gets depressed and he still claims he's the victim, but he starts to lash out at people as a result. As the line in the uh, sequence I just played for you shows where Dutch starts to question John, starts to question maybe his loyalty, implying perhaps John or some other gang members were giving tips to the police, giving them information that led to the collapse of the gang. Once again, it wasn't that Dutch was reckless. It was that somebody betrayed him. And here I also just want to say some reviewers and critics have said that chapter five is a waste of a chapter and that it's a waste of time. It could be cut from the game and the game would be no different. I'm not going to name these people because I don't like to get into these drama spats. Um, if you've watched a lot of reviews for Red Dead, I'm sure you can figure out who they are. Point being, I think that's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And if you said that, then you should probably stop making YouTube videos. Okay, maybe not to that extent. But I would argue that chapter five is the single most important chapter, narratively speaking, perhaps not in terms of gameplay, of course, but in terms of the narrative, which I would argue is the whole point of this game to begin with. I think it's the most important chapter bar none. And I especially find it interesting in terms of the broader themes. Again, Dutch is constantly talking about how he wants to get his group live independently away from society and civilization and technology. He wants to live alone on a desolate island. And he says this many, many times. He wants to go to Tahiti or one of those islands and just live out the rest of his days happy and peaceful in this tropical island living off the land and fighting for his himself in an independent fashion and in this chapter he actually gets to do that he goes to a tropical island and is away from all responsibility he could just live out his days here instead of going back to the mainland but instead he decides that he needs to go back because again it's the pride it's never going to be good enough for him and if you think it's just a coincidence that they land during this crash on a tropical island that mirrors a lot of the things that Dutch was talking about with Tahiti and the eventual escape he would make there. I don't think that that's a coincidence. Point of all of this being, I love Arthur and I love Dutch and they interact together in such a fascinating and interesting way, not just because of the writing, but because of the performances, because of the acting, everything that they did, it was absolutely phenomenal and they deserve all of the praise and awards that they've received to this point. And you may be thinking, Luke, this is supposed to be a critique. You're supposed to be criticizing this game pretty heavily. Why aren't you doing so yet? And I am going to get into some heavy criticisms here in a few minutes. But when we're talking about the narrative, that's what this game does so well. And that's why this game is one of the highest rated games of all time ever released 
period, signed, sealed, delivered, see you in the morning. It's ridiculously well done as a narrative experience. It's only once the gameplay starts coming in that you start to encounter some real issues with the way that the game is built. But let's discuss John Marston for a minute. You interact with John throughout the majority of the story. He's in a lot of the quests. He's in a lot of the main story missions that you go on. But you really get to see him shine, of course, during the epilogue. After Arthur has died and you get to play through several hours of the game with just you and John trying to become a good and wholesome person, do right by your family and live the life that Arthur wanted to, but has said many, many times, he said he couldn't, no matter how hard he tried, that just wasn't going to be the man he was going to be. He never was going to be the farmer. He never was going to have the normal life. It just wasn't in the cards for him. So at the very least, if Arthur could give something to John to help him to live out that life, he he would. And as we saw at the end of the game, he did, at least depending on the choice that you made. And I will say this, I know a lot of people skipped the epilogue. They got to Arthur's death and they just felt like they had seen everything they needed to see, especially when they realized that they wouldn't be playing as Arthur in the epilogue and that they'd be going through a whole nother series of stories. But I would highly encourage you to do so. I think it's actually very well done, even though it's quite different. Like I said, it's a huge shift from the main game. Instead of playing as a pillaging, pirating hobgoblin, I'm not sure what that is. Instead of all of that, you play as John Marston trying to be the father and the husband that his family expects him to be. And it's such a, a shift that it's kind of hard to quantify. And it's very intentionally shifted in that way. It's no coincidence that a lot of the gameplay that you were becoming accustomed to is not present in these chapters. It's not only not present, it's not permissible. They don't even allow you to go through a lot of the same sequences and to do a lot of the same stuff. And so when some people say that this epilogue is quote unquote boring, I wouldn't necessarily disagree. I would agree that it's more boring compared to the main game, but I would actually argue that that's the entire point. They made it to be less interesting so that you feel the same way that John Marston feels. John Marston just lived an entire life, technically, as an outlaw, running around robbing trains, going and doing all sorts of crazy stuff, robbing banks and, and steamships. Now you're going through your life feeding cows, milking cows, scooping up manure, showing horses. It is far less interesting, but that's the point. You feel the same way that John feels. You're doing these mundane tasks, building fences and stuff, and you just want to get back out there and do that which you used to do, the more exciting and dangerous stuff. That's what's quote-unquote fun to both the player and to John Marston. And that's why inevitably by the end of the epilogue, you will slide into those same old habits and start doing the same stuff that you did before, which I would argue is why you should give it a play just because you will end up seeing some really nice bookends for the story. And if you care about John Marston at all, or if you intend to go back through and play the original game, I think you should. I think it's a good idea. Furthermore, some people will ask why the game didn't just end on Arthur's death and why they had to add this whole epilogue in. And of course, the easy answer is just that the story hadn't been fully told. There was a lot of empty space that they wanted to fill. And if they wanted to milk it for a narrative DLC, they could have done that. You know, you pay 20 bucks and you get to play through the epilogue chapters. They could have done that. But instead... They chose to give it to players for free, allow them to go through the whole story from start to finish and play 
the the narrative the way that the writers felt that you should to get the book into the story because again it's not just a story about arthur it's a story about arthur's legacy it's a story about the gang's legacy more than anything and you could argue that it's a story that's just as much about dutch as it is about arthur himself even though you're playing as arthur dutch is at the heart of everything that you're doing and I think it's also important to point out that they didn't call it chapter seven. They didn't call it chapter 6.9. They called it epilogue because I think they accepted that a good number of people were going to reach Arthur's death and were just going to put it down and not bother completing the rest of it. They just would say, you know what? That was a good place. I feel happy with where I got to. And to be honest, I think if you played through the six chapters and you got to Arthur's death, and you felt like that was all you needed to see, that's okay. I don't think that you're missing out on the experience of Red Dead Redemption 2. I would argue you're missing out on a core piece of it, a major piece of it that I think is going to really help you process a lot of the things that happened in the main game, and it's going to make you feel much better about Arthur's death. But if you don't, I guess I can forgive you someday. And so by the time that the epilogue ends, you are John Marston, father, ranch owner, uh, you are a successful father. Everything's going well for you. You've solved all of the problems that you had with Dutch and with the gang and Micah. Everything's good, happy, and lucky. You're debt-free and you can just explore. You can just go and do whatever you want and you get to live in this world without a lot of the pressures that Arthur had. And in some ways, I think you get to live the life that Arthur wanted you to. Going back to our earlier discussion of the lack of density within the world of Red Dead Redemption 2, you have a lot of time to just sit and think about what just happened, about all of those 80 hours that you were playing the game when you're riding through the hills of the, the map as John Marston just exploring and seeing what tickles your fancy. And while you're doing that, you tend to think a lot about Arthur's history, Arthur's impact, what he asked John to do in his final moments, what he expected, and his overall legacy. And again, I think that that's something that's really special. That's not something that a video game is typically able to do, but it's something that's only possible when they allow you to be alone with your thoughts for more than 20 seconds. If they let you ride for minutes on end, just thinking, just riding along the road, doing whatever you're going to do. And I will just say one of the little attention to detail things that I saw that I absolutely loved is, you know how you're exploring the world, Arthur will take out his notebook and he'll sketch out a landmark or something he saw that was interesting. And then he'll write a little poem or note about it, something like that. At the end of the game, of course, he gave John that notebook. And so John has that notebook as he explores. And if you encounter certain objects or landmarks, that Arthur didn't explore or find while he was alive and while you were playing as Arthur, he'll actually sketch it out too and he'll leave the note. But John has horrible handwriting and is not a very good drawer or artist at all. And so you'll actually see a difference as you're flipping through the pages. You'll see Arthur's drawings, which are really clean and beautiful. And then you'll see John Marston's, which are all just chicken scratch and terrible drawings. It's actually a really cute and endearing touch because you can kind of see like father and then son effectively where you're seeing him echo a lot of the things that his uh, father figure was trying to teach him and do. It's just adorable. I love it. 
And the last character, I wasn't going to do this, but the last character I want to mention, just because I think she's awesome, is Sadie. I don't know what it is. Again, I think it's performance. I think it's writing. I think it's her place in the story. But she's just lovable and endearing, and you can't get enough of her once you start interacting with her. And I think that she's one of the most important and interesting characters in the entirety of the game. And it's actually surprising that we don't get to see more of her, given how much they build her up. Honestly, she's probably my favorite side character. She's reckless, crazy, and honestly, she has every reason to be, especially when you realize, which I didn't at first, that this is the same girl that you rescue in the opening sequence of the game from the house fire. I realized it like an hour and a half in, but I didn't realize it at first. And given her history where she watched her husband get murdered, then she hid in a wine cellar as those same people that murdered her husband uh, ransacked her house and were staying there. And then she eventually fights her way out, encounters Micah, sets her own house on fire, burning all of her memories, leaving her dead husband behind. She has reason to be upset and a little, uh, little crazy. She's the first truly innocent character that you encounter, and she chooses to join you and your gang. She mourns her hubby until Clemens Point, the chapter where you are hanging out there, when she eventually convinces Arthur to let her go with him on errands, at which point Arthur agrees, lets her come along. They get in a gunfight. She shines and does a great job, and Sadie is born. After this point, she sticks with Arthur through thick and thin. She follows him through everything and tends to side with him during any sort of discussion or debate where she could have the option of disagreeing or siding with Dutch or the gang. She always sides with Arthur and eventually with John after Arthur is gone. And you get to encounter her all the way through the end of the epilogue, another reason to play through it if you haven't, where she's gravely injured. And I will just say, I was really scared she was gonna die. Thank God she doesn't. She survives and goes on her way. We don't really get to see what she does or where she goes. It's implied that she goes off with you know, living a, a new life somewhere else as a bounty hunter or what have you. Honestly, everything about her character just makes me want to see more of her. Maybe we will. Who knows? Maybe Red Dead Redemption 3. It's coming along quick, right? Next year, maybe? <laughs> Point being, the narrative is expertly handled and deserves all of the praise that's been levied against it, including all of mine, I'd like to think. And I think that the narrative is the single most important part of the game, which is good because... We're going to talk about the gameplay next, which is by far the weakest point. So the gameplay, this is where the game really starts to falter, not because it's terrible, just because it doesn't live up to the same quality standard that the narrative set forth. And so it makes it very clear that this is a narrative game first and that the gameplay leaves a fair bit to be desired. Now, at the core of the gameplay loop within Red Dead Redemption 2 is, of course, the gunplay, which is very well done, to be perfectly honest. All of the guns feel unique. All of the guns feel highly customizable, as you can take them to gun shops and change them to your own liking, which, frankly, isn't very expensive once you get a few hours into the game. So you can deck out all of your guns to be solid gold, as I did, because I'm flashy. Or you can keep them pretty rustic, just focus on functionality, whatever you want to do. The customization options are there. Now, one of the big things with shooting within Red Dead Redemption 2 and the original Red Dead Redemption is, of course, the Deadeye mechanic, which is effectively the mechanic that allows you to go into slow mode and then actually pinpoint where you want your shots to land and go based on certain weak points, etc. And... 
all of this feels pretty good. You know, it never feels particularly difficult. I don't remember any time while I was playing through Red Dead Redemption 2 where I felt as though I needed to drop the difficulty or I needed an easy mode or I needed something like that. It always felt pretty well balanced. And whenever I got in over my head, it was because I was being stupid. The game's actually pretty well balanced in that way. In terms of the way that the actual guns work, I would say it's pretty forgiving, especially for the time period it's set in and how rough you are on these weapons. The fact that you don't have more completely missed shots because your gun was dirty or because it was wet or whatever it may be. I, I think it's understandable that they made those choices because once again, it is a video game and I don't think most people would be having quote unquote fun if they were to take out their sniper rifle for the big shot, they aim, pull the trigger and it doesn't work because they happen to walk through a swamp 45 minutes before that sequence. I understand why they chose not to do that. And that's kind of the case with all of these sort of shooter style games, but for the setting, especially with all of the realism that they took all throughout the rest of the game, you would have expected a little bit more put into these elements. Sure, there's cleaning mechanics. There's things where you have to keep your guns up kept in order to use them properly. But it certainly doesn't punish the player as much as you would expect for having a dirty gun as it would be in the real life. It's not as punishing as the rest of the game or the world is with other sins that you may commit. There's also an auto lock on mechanic for the shooting, which is really helpful during horse chases and rides and things where you can just quickly tap the left trigger. Even if you're playing on Xbox or PlayStation, it works with both. And then it kind of takes it out and then it zooms back in, locks onto the nearest enemy, usually centered right on their chest. And then with just a slight adjustment up, you can easily get a headshot. So it turns into this sort of left trigger up fire motion that you get pretty used to. It just turns into muscle memory where it's headshot, headshot, headshot pretty easily. And I criticized this back with the original Red Dead Redemption, but my core contention was that I didn't know what to do instead because if they didn't have this snap-on mechanic, then it wouldn't work. When you're riding on the back of a horse, it just doesn't work to have to try to do it manually with the right joystick. It just doesn't work the same way and so to have this little bit of levity would be very helpful and I think is highly appreciated for most players and I think it's just a necessary evil in order to get a game like this working especially because you don't want to be frustrated so much by the controls that you can't absorb the broader message of what's going on with the story or even get through a sequence because it's so gimmicky and finicky with how you're trying to maneuver it. And it would lead to them putting less enemies on screen because they need to make sure that the threat is manageable and everything would start to follow as a result of that slight change. So I'm okay with it. Again, I think it's just a necessary evil. But with regards to the gameplay loop itself, it's actually fairly straightforward. Depending on how you choose to play the game, it can actually shift. If you're going through narrative sequences, it's going to be go to mission marker, go through the quest, and most of the quests are going to be made up in the same way as the second option, which is go off play by yourself and then end up doing the same thing you would do in the missions, which is that you end up going to some destination where something interesting is happening you engage with the characters or the animals that are there you end up getting into a gunfight of some sort or some sort of physical altercation once that has ceased and the waters have calmed and settled you loot whatever you can 
and then you leave to another location and you rinse and repeat. It's fairly straightforward. Again, people criticize this gameplay loop as excessively simple, and that's true that most Red Dead Redemption 2 quests are going to end up being just go here, shoot these people, and then come back, or go here, shoot these people, grab this item, and then bring it back, or this person, and then bring them back to this location. And while that seems highly simple, again, there's not a whole lot else that you can do with the formula and the characters that they have. And once again, I, I don't think that it's fair to simplify it quite to that extent because part of what informs this whole gameplay loop to begin with is the narrative. When you're listening to those discussions that are forming what you're doing and why you're doing it, it's not going to seem as bland or as boring as you would otherwise expect. But on the flip side, I can see the argument where people say that the quest design is just not highly creative. It has you doing a lot of the same stuff over and over and over again. And I do agree with that. They needed to shake it up and they needed to do some things differently. But I wouldn't say that it's a mortal flaw that kills the game. I wouldn't say that at all. In fact, we're actually going to talk about the broader structure of all of these quests in a minute. Where the game really takes off and where I think the core gameplay loop lies is in that second option I laid out earlier, which is when you go off and you try to make your own missions. When you go out and you try to do your own things, such as hunting, trying to collect as many pelts as you can to raise money to go and get a new steed or a new and better saddle or a bunch of clothes and outfits, a bunch of flashy guns. That's when the game really takes off, when you take matters into your own hands, in addition to going on the story quests and doing what the narrative expects you to do. So hunting, fishing, trapping, exploring. This is where the game stops being just an open world shooter and instead becomes an open world narrative sandbox. And I know that distinction seems small, but it's pretty significant when you actually think about the implications because you're allowed to make your own experience in the sandbox. You aren't really allowed to make your own experience in the strict open world shooter, which has guide rails for you to go on. Even though it's open world, if you're just bouncing between main quest marker to main quest marker, main quest marker, it's effectively just one giant level that has a bunch of quests in it that you're interacting with, as opposed to an open world that you can explore and interact with that happens to have quest markers throughout it. Again, small distinction, but it's got big implications. And I will say these moments where you're just exploring can be some of the most memorable and interesting in the entire 80 hours plus that you spend playing the game. There's so much to find here. I'm sure I've only found half of the things that are crammed within this map, even though they're very stretched out. It's still pretty dense when you look at it on uh, one of those maps that like IGN has assembled with all of the mini markers that are placed on the map. It's pretty impressive. Like I found a Bigfoot carcass as well as a Bigfoot in a cave. There's even houses with asteroids crashed through the roof and incestuous siblings to rob. There really is a ton here. You just have to go out and try to find it. My main criticism here is actually that the game's narrative is so well developed, especially after a few hours, you really start to get engaged with it that rarely did I want to meander for a few hours to do my own thing. I just wanted to progress through the story that I was so highly engaged in. Now, get me, don't get me wrong, it's a good problem to have, but still, a lot of people aren't going to get to do any of these things, such as hunting, exploring, and trapping, until after the game is over, 80 hours after the fact. And 
to me, that just seems like most people are probably going to get to that point and think that they just have experienced everything the game has to offer, or they'll be fatigued and they just got through this 80 hour experience and they just want to wash their hands and be done with it. That's okay too. I totally understand that, but I think that they are missing out a little bit. Point being, I think that the game could have done more to encourage players to do their own thing. Maybe you hide mission spawn points and force players to explore. I don't know. You'd have to randomize it so that players don't just Google where the next mission spawn point is because then that kind of defeats the point of immersion within a game world. I'm sure that they could think of something where you encourage the player to explore and allow them to understand that they don't need to rush through the story in the same way that I felt obligated to not not that it's a bad thing i enjoyed of course going through the story one mission after the other but it was because i felt as though the story needed to progress i thought that it was interesting and that the story was moving along and so i wanted to go through and figure out what happened next it's like when you're super engaged in a show on hulu or netflix and you just want to see the next episode no matter what it takes you're going to see the next episode even though like you should probably take some time in between otherwise it's not going to be the same you want to know what happens next so you just hit next and you go through it and it loses some of that potency because again you become desensitized to it, your tolerance builds, and it's just not as special as it was before. Quick little thing, these longer videos, I don't know if you can tell, I can feel it, but as these like four, five, six hour shooting sessions go on, I can really feel my voice start to change and shift, and it always gets deeper and more raw, blah, 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 blah. I don't know if that's nice on your ear or if you can even hear a difference or tell, I, I don't know. I can feel it. But the only real way to fix it is to stretch filming these things out over two, three, four days and just do an hour a day or something. But that's not really an option because that would take even longer to make these videos than they already take. So, yeah, I guess it's a necessary evil at this point. Now, if we shift gears a little bit, one of the best things that can happen in any sort of open world narrative experience is when the narrative informs the gameplay and vice versa. They're so interconnected that they seem to change the way that each other works so that it feels as though it's not just independent mechanics as a part of a larger entertainment product, but rather that this is a living, breathing world that has actual consequences for actions and things that happen within the story. The narrative can even be stupid, but if the narrative can change the way that the game functions, it is inherently more interesting than a game where the antithesis is, is true. For instance, look at Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. I've actually done a critique of Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice before, so if you want to hear me talk about this game for an hour, which it's like a seven-hour game, so I spend like a seventh of the time that you could have been playing the game talking about regardless if you want to see that video i'll have it linked down below now quick little spoiler warning i know you didn't expect me to talk about hellblade so if you haven't played it yet or if you plan on playing it and this is going to make you angry if i spoil it just skip forward i'll have a little timestamp here so that you can jump ahead so spoiler warning out of the way, there is a moment in the game where Senua, who deals with mental illness, of course, has a mental break and has to find her way through a spooky and scary labyrinth without sight. And this is reflected in the way that the game actually has you control her. You, the player, also lose your sight and have to navigate by way of your hearing exclusively. And considering the fact that they have what they call bi-aural uh, audio that's used in the recording of the game and in the way that the game renders audio, 
with headphones on, it actually feels as though you are Senua. It's not the typical game sound. It's a completely different experience, and I think that you should try it just for that weird different experience. They also have voices that help guide you, which are the voices within Senua's head, and the way that they recorded it makes it sound as though they're actually coming from inside your mind. It's, it's bizarre, but it's really, really cool at the same time. And so as you explore this dark and spooky hallway, you have to do it effectively by closing your eyes and just focusing on the audio, walking through this hallway, trying to avoid the monsters and the creeping sounds, trusting your hearing in the same exact way that Senua does. And initially it's terrifying because you're utterly vulnerable. You're closing your eyes. You're just listening. But once again, the narrative is informing the gameplay, the narrative is making you feel the same way that the character within the game is feeling. And that's one of those magical things that games can do that no other medium can do in the same way. It actually forces you to empathize with them, putting your feet in their shoes because it makes you feel the same exact way. Now, when Red Dead Redemption 2 does this, it shifts not just small sequences such as uh, a single hallway that you have to explore and get through. It shifts entire themes and macro ideas within the story, the narrative, and the characters' lives. Think about when Arthur finds out that he has tuberculosis. It changes his health and stamina gauges to the point where he's incapable of the same level of cardio, and as the game carries on, he deteriorates and begins to play and control like that which he is, a sick and dying cowboy way past his prime. Or look at the opening. During the opening, Rockstar wanted to reinforce the feeling of being on the run, not having a home, and the human desire to belong to a family. And so you run from camp to camp trying to find a place to settle. You protect and serve the people of your community, and you also have to be very discreet while in some towns in order to reduce suspicion. Or look at the epilogue, which we mentioned earlier, wherein John's life seems to be super boring and uninteresting, and the game seems to be super boring and uninteresting at that moment, but once again, it forces the player to feel the same way that John Marston feels. Like I've said before, I'm sure there's a term for this, some term that a scientist thought up at some point. I've called this gameplay empathy before. I, I don't know if that term's been used before, but I think it's appropriate because by way of and by means of gameplay, they force you to feel and empathize with the character, feeling the same things that they're feeling, seeing the same things they're seeing. And I think it's one of those magical things that video games can do that no other artistic medium can. But with that said, let's shift the discussion a little bit towards the broader quest design within the game. It's one of the most commonly criticized things uh, surrounding Red Dead Redemption 2, and I have some thoughts. Now, I'm actually going to take a slightly different approach to this discussion than a lot of other critics have taken, and that is to look at what we should have expected with Rockstar coming into Red Dead Redemption 2. Of course, the last game that we received from Rockstar was Grand Theft Auto 5, and so a lot of people assume that the quest structure and the way that they design these quests would take a lot from Grand Theft Auto 5, because after all, that was the last game that they had. Grand Theft Auto's quests are highly freedom-based, highly focused on individual autonomy and sovereignty, with many varied options in the later game, branching character choices, etc. By the way, I'm I'm going to be doing a full critique of Grand Theft Auto 5 sometime in the near future. Make sure to subscribe if you want to see it. And also check out my Patreon if you want to see it a full week before everybody else. Yay! <laughs> 
And to be honest, this quest structure seems to make sense for Grand Theft Auto. I mean, when you consider the fact that you have cars, planes, helicopters, mountains, and ocean, and the sky, it, it's literally the limit. The sky is the limit. There's also a ton of minigames, which is something that Red Dead Redemption 2 takes from Grand Theft Auto V and the previous Red Dead Redemption. There's a lot of little things you can do, such as poker. You can play the five-finger shove a knife between your cracks game. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> and that's broadly what Grand Theft Auto V has to offer. It's highly freedom-based. It's focused on individuals coming up with their own clever solutions to complex problems. And it encourages that sort of creative gameplay. And I think that's what a lot of people expected out of Red Dead Redemption 2. But I don't actually think that this is the best comparison. I actually think the better comparison would be to look at a game that Rockstar published back in 2011. It's not a game that they developed, but it's actually a game that they had a lot of influence over. And it's one of my favorites of all time. Of course, I'm talking about L.A. Noir. I also did a full critique of this game too. I'll have it linked down below if you wanna check it out. This game is very, very linear. It does have some branching in terms of the case options. If you convict the wrong person or indict the wrong person, it can shift sort of, but it's set up in effect in blocks and stages. So if you think about it, destination A to B, you can have a long string between the two points. You can take whichever path you want to, but you're still gonna end up at destination B because the two ends of the string are attached there. And then if you go B to C, same thing, long rope, and then it ends up in the same spot, but you still feel as you go from A to B to C to D to E, you still feel as though you are having some sort of freedom. You just don't realize that they're controlling your experience overall. That's broadly the structure of L.A. Noir. Like I said, most people thought that Grand Theft Auto V was going to be the most direct comparison because it came out the most recently and it's the last game that they worked on. But I, I think that that was a mistake. I think L.A. Noir is the game that they took probably more from, in addition, of course, to the original Red Dead Redemption. But it does seem to me that a lot of the questing structure, a lot of the way that they designed these interactions follow the rough structure of L.A. Noir. The main reason why I think that this comparison is flawed comparing it to Grand Theft Auto V and why comparing it to L.A. Noir is more accurate has to do with this setting. And it's actually the same reason that I've said Red Dead Online is at a major disadvantage compared to Grand Theft Auto Online. And that's because when you have access to cars, planes, boats, yachts, motorcycles, dirt bikes, ATVs, helicopters, jets, bazookas, sniper rifles, not to mention a massive metropolis designed to be explored and to mess around in, your gameplay experience is going to be highly dynamic when you have those things. On the contrary, when you're playing in the setting of a Red Dead Redemption 2, you are highly constrained by definition by the setting because you are dealing with horses, older rifles, an untamed wilderness, and there's just less room for craziness. When you have LA effectively in the form of Los Santos versus a barren wilderness, of course there's going to be differences in terms of what you can do and how you can play in it. 
Now I say constrained purposely because it isn't by definition a bad thing. Sure, a modern setting allows for a lot of possibilities as you'd expect, but a Wild West setting also grants a lot of possibilities to the developers. Might not be as explosive as a car chase with a bazooka and grenade launcher through Los Santos, but it still is interesting and there still is the potential for a lot of really interesting set pieces and highly explosive moments with a lot of fire. But it also allows for a level of immersion that you can't get in Grand Theft Auto V, at least in my opinion. I think you can get much more immersed in the world of Red Dead Redemption 2 than in the world of Grand Theft Auto V simply by way of the absurdity that is inherent to Grand Theft Auto V and Grand Theft Auto in general. It's not a bad thing that they're absurd in the way that they design and structure everything. It's a fact of the games and it's why a lot of people love the games including myself but it means that you're not going to get as engrossed in the narrative as you will with red dead redemption 2 again they're different franchises they're different games they're trying to achieve different things and so what this effectively looks like is that red dead redemption's quests have a lot of dialogue and backstories building to either a singular shootout sequence to finish the mission or a fetch and return sequence where we're asked to acquire some person or thing and move it from one location to another. And this may seem overly simple, so I'm gonna use a couple of actual examples. In Pouring Forth Oil, a story mission, the gang is trying to organize a train heist that's based on information that you can acquire in Valentine. John has the brilliant idea that you can take a bunch of oil, spread it on the tracks, and in turn make the driver stop, and so you are tasked with helping acquire the oil. You go to find an oil tanker, you steal it, and then you bring it to a previously agreed upon location. You have the exposition, travel, acquisition, and then we complete the fetch quest. And sometimes a quest can have the same sort of overall structure, but add a big set piece in order to spice it up and make it seem as though it's not the same thing that you've done a hundred times over earlier in the game. And I guess that's not really even a criticism. It's just an observation that they tend to do this a lot. I'm not complaining that they spice up these repetitive quests with large set pieces. That's a good thing, and I think they should do it because it does actually do what it seeks to do. It distracts the player, makes them realize they're not actually doing the same thing that they've done a thousand times over, as does all of the dialogue that can happen during these missions. For example, look at the quest My Last Boy. Eagle Flies shows up with a bunch of his buddies, asks for your help overthrowing the factory in the Heartland oil fields, and then his father, Rain Falls, begs him not to go because he's his quote-unquote last boy, and that it would be useless because he can't win in the end. But Eagle Flies, being young, doesn't care, leaves anyway. Arthur writes to try and stop the reckless Eagle Flies. You engage in a massive shootout and then return Eagle Flies to his father after you find him mortally wounded because he decided to help you when Dutch didn't. Again, it's the same overall quest that we've seen before. It's effectively a fetch quest. It's just instead of fetching an oil tanker, you're fetching a person. And instead of bringing them back to a predetermined location, you're bringing him all the way back because he's injured. So you can't just talk him out of it. And there's a large shootout that keeps it exciting. But in this case, there's a large set piece and there's a lot of very important story beats that happens, which once again breaks up the overall quest. So you don't feel as though you're just going on a fetch quest. It feels as though you're actually going and doing something important, which again, you are. So I'm not really criticizing the fact that they've shaken it up. I'm just observing and pointing out that the quests 
are incredibly similar or repetitive all the way throughout the game. They just flash them up in different ways with different coats of paint so you don't realize it's the same thing. To me, it seems like the quest that we're talking about, the overall structure is like the canvas. Yes, all the canvases or canvi, whatever it is, are the same. It's just the matter uh, a matter of how much paint you put on it, how you put it on it, what image you imprint on it to turn it from just a plain canvas into something more special. They're using the same rough outline, but they're dressing it up so that it becomes something different. Is the outline the same? Yes, but is the end product very different? Also, yes. So it's not a direct criticism. It's just an observation pointing out that these quests are very, very similar. It's just a matter of set dressing. Furthermore, the game does a really good job of interconnecting everything that's within it. So, for example, in the aforementioned quest, My Last Boy, at the end, your vision goes and Arthur actually falls off of his horse. Once again, his health is declining, he's becoming sick, and he just becomes lightheaded, falls off his horse, and then he's rescued by a family who brings him into their home, helps him become healthy again, I guess, saves his life, presumably, and this family is actually a family you encountered earlier in the game during the quest, A Strange Kindness. It's the German family that you rescued when you first started playing the game. And it's something that probably not a lot of people are even going to notice until it's pointed out to them that this is the same family that rescued you. Sure, they have a little line here and there. You saved us. We're saving you now. Something along those lines. But still, it's it's a small detail. It's something that they didn't need to do. They could have had anybody, any family find him and pick him up and it would have been fine. But instead they have all of it interconnected. So again, you see as though this is sort of a redemption. It's, it's an actual reflection of the overall broader story. Your actions do have consequences and can come back to either bite you or help you in the end. Another example is whenever you help anybody during these dynamic encounters that can happen throughout the world, you can see them again in town. If you saved some guy who was trapped under his horse, you can see him outside of a tavern, talk with him, and he'll buy you a, a shot of whiskey just for helping him out. So you get whiskey for free. And it's those little things that help the world feel even more alive, that help the gameplay feel worth engaging in. Because again, your decisions have an impact in the broader world. Another smaller detail that's been mentioned before, but I still find really, really interesting and well done is the fact that you can actually see the moment that Arthur catches tuberculosis. It's during the quest, Money, Lending, and Other Sins, uh, I believe part three, when he actually goes to receive money from a, a farmer who is very sick and hasn't been able to raise the crops, I suppose, in order to sell and repay his debt. And when Arthur comes and interacts with him, the guy actually gets very angry because Arthur is beating him up, spits in his face. And in that moment, he's become uh, infected. He's he's in contact with the Tuberks. And it's, it's just such a small detail because, again, if you just saw that Arthur got tuberculosis, I and many other people just accepted that, yeah, he got tuberculosis. This is the Wild West. That, that happened all the time. In every movie, it seems like before 1915, set before 1950, you see somebody cough into their hand or, or handkerchief or something, and it gets all red and it's dripping, and everybody just kind of accepts that, oh, they're going to be dead in a week. Oh, well, it's just like part of, of life at that point. So I think a lot of people just accepted it uh, bar none as 
just something that happens. I know I did because I wasn't thinking back to that one time I encountered some person who coughed. It's a detail they didn't need to include, but they chose to include it. And I think that's what separates these developers and, and the, the writers of this game separates them from everybody else. Because again, they didn't need to. Nobody would have criticized them if they hadn't done this but they chose to. Nobody would have freaked out and said, well, I wish we had seen the moment that Arthur caught tuberculosis. Nobody would have said that because nobody would have cared. They didn't know that they wanted to see it until you gave it to them. All of these things make the game feel alive, make it feel polished, and make it feel worth exploring. And all of this brings me to the broader discussion of the game's legacy. And this is always the hardest part of any critique because it's still to be written it's still happening and it's something we're going to see over the course of the next decade what games take from this game what games don't take from this game what developers feel as though are the core lessons to be garnered from it and what they feel like should be left behind and and what's outdated what's not worth carrying forward into the next generation of games and so it's tough to to discuss it's tough to figure out exactly what to say but i do have some thoughts red dead redemption 2 is without a doubt one of the best narrative games i have ever played and i don't have any doubts or reservations about that i, I stand behind that statement and i think many people who have played the game would also stand behind that statement the elephant in the room of course is that red dead redemption 2 did not get my game of the year award it went to god of war and that's mainly because God of War is an exceptional game in its own right. And to me, it seemed as though Red Dead Redemption 2 played it safe. And sure, it had one of the greatest narratives I think that's ever been put into a video game, period. If not downright the best. But they didn't take a lot of risks. They didn't change the formula. They made a Rockstar game. And in many cases, the Rockstar game that many people expected them to make and they didn't really surprise anybody. Everybody expects Rockstar to be one of the best and to do the narrative in a fantastic way, especially with regards to Red Dead Redemption and that franchise. And they delivered. They did exactly what we wanted them to, but they didn't change the formula. They didn't reinvent the wheel. They didn't reinvent much of anything. And I think the core question is, did they need to? Is Rockstar just so far ahead of everybody else that an outdated Rockstar game is still way ahead of everybody else's open world game. And that's something that I don't think is quite fair. I think there are elements, as we've said throughout this video, where Red Dead Redemption 2 could uh, improve it and where Rockstar could improve the, the gameplay and the gameplay loop and the way that they've structured it and the way that they encourage players to explore the worlds. But still, it's, it's undeniable that Rockstar is at the cutting edge and even when they make an outdated game it's still one of the best games ever made and so i guess the single takeaway for me if i had to summarize it in one sentence it would be that red dead redemption 2 is predictably amazing it's exactly what we expected it to be which is both a good thing and a bad thing it's it's a good thing because we expected excellence we expected one of the best narrative games ever made and we got it it's bad because they didn't do anything risky. They didn't take any chances. They didn't do anything revolutionary, which is part of what's made Rockstar, Rockstar. Rockstar is the studio they are because they stood behind the Grand Theft Auto franchise, which everybody told them to abandon because of all the bad press. Everybody told them that it wasn't worth engaging in. They have engaged in many other franchises, which 
the broader press has told them to avoid, but they stick to their guns and they do these risky things. Even though everybody's telling them it's not going to work, you shouldn't believe in that project, it's a waste of time, blah, 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 it ends up working. And that's what separates Rockstar. And so while this game is predictably amazing, it also is lacking part of what makes Rockstar one of the best studios on the planet. And that is their risk-taking and their ability to just take the leap of faith off of the cliff and prove to everybody that they can fly even though nobody believed that they could. And so, while Red Dead Redemption 2 is one of the greatest games I have ever played without a doubt in my mind, I think Rockstar could have done more. I think they could have taken more risks and I think they could have done something even more amazing, which is saying something. But that's all from me. Thank you for watching honestly and truly. This video has taken just over six and a half hours to film in this cold, dark, and somehow also hot room, not to mention the months of work that went into it before we even sat down to film it today, and the hours and days and potentially weeks of work that will go on after this has been filmed to get it actually ready to be published for patrons and viewers like yourself. So the fact that you've watched it this far through, if you've gotten to this point, honestly, thank you. You are what make all of this possible and, and worth it. I really do appreciate it. I'm going to go get some sleep and I hope you enjoyed the video. If you liked it, hit the like button, maybe share it with your friends, consider subscribing. And if you want to see more videos like this and want to see them a week before everybody else, Patreon. Thank you. I love you all.